Hello and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Brooke Jackson, and today I have with me Zena Sherman, and we're going to talk about collective parenting. But before we get that, we want to celebrate being a member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts by giving a little shout out to one of the other wonderful podcasts on our network. Insert jingle here. But I do. Welcome to Mall Top Now, a podcast about taking action. In Molotov Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. And we're back. Uh, Zena, thanks for being on the podcast with me today to talk about um, collective parenting. I'm really excited to discuss this topic um, more with you. But first, uh, let's. I want. I want to get to know you a little more. Let the listeners get to know you a little bit more. So, um, would you introduce yourself? Tell me name, preferred pronouns, uh, other things you want to share. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for the invitation to be here. I'm a really big fan of the podcast and hopefully we'll have some useful things to share with the community of listeners. Yay. So I'm Zena Sharman. I use she, her pronouns, and you can find me on unceded Quetzin territories, uh, so colonially known as Vancouver Island uh, up in Canada. And I come into our conversation as a queer femme. I'm in my mid-40s, which feels salient to how I'm moving through the world, including <laughs> as a parent. And I am a parent to three kids, and I'm raising them collectively with three other queer people. And outside of the work that I do, the care work that I do as a parent, I am also a writer. I have done a lot of queer and trans health advocacy and systems change work over the years, and then have a growing practice in my communities um, as a death doula and a hospice volunteer. So thinking about many facets of how do we care for one another? That's really great. Um, we recently did an episode with uh, a death doula um, and talked about uh a little bit of that subject but you know uh, i listened to that one <laughs> i'm glad <laughs> um but we're gonna talk about the other end of of the life spectrum and uh the the little ones and, and how we uh do care for them um so you mentioned that you collectively parent and of course i mentioned that that's our subject for today so i'm curious uh what that phrase means um, to you how you would define it um and and what it looks like in practice I think practice is the operative word in the sense that I'm definitely not coming into this conversation as someone who claims any kind of expertise or definitive take on how to do this. And what I can say is I'm coming into the conversation, sharing some of the things I've learned and I'm still in a process of learning mm -hmm. now having been in this experience for more than five years, almost six years. So I wouldn't say that I use collective parenting necessarily uh, kind of consciously in my day-to-day -day life. And I do think it's actually a really nice way to describe what it is that I do. Um, and I mean, I think if I had to give the most distilled down definition, collective parenting would be parenting together. 
uh, including with more than two parents or multiple kind of caregivers and whatever that family or caregiving formation looks like. And I think it's useful to think about how there are many ways in which different kinds of ways of taking care of children are collective, um, though there's definitely variation and maybe the shape or intensity of the, the collectivity kind of inherent in that. Um, and I mentioned that because I think about the ways that family structures continue to change, right? Mm. Like if we yeah, think yeah. about the dominant norm of the nuclear family, which is such a structuring shape in the context of settler colonialism, in the context of the ways in which the state seeks to legislate family, mm. yet mm-hmm. many kinds of communities are, are creating family in different kinds of ways, you know, even down to kids with multiple parents because of having blended families, you know, maybe through separation right. divorce, for example. So I think it's useful to think about that bigger picture piece, but also think about like, what does it mean to make an intentional choice to parent together outside of the nuclear family form? And that's the particular kind of collective parenting that I'm practicing. Very interesting. Did you, I'm really curious, did you um, start doing that uh, when your your first child um, joined the family or is that something you discovered sort of after Um they, you know, after you became a parent? Yeah, it started even before that, actually. Okay, so cool. I'll give you the, the, the microgenesis of our family. So many years ago, um, so our, our, I should maybe kind of bring us into the present for a moment and say that there's four adults in our family. There's three kids. So we have a five-year-old and we have 20-month-old twins. We're busy. Mm-hmm. And among the adults, we have uh, two romantic couples who are co-parenting together. We all live together in one big house. And at the core of that as well is a platonic co-parenting dyad. So okay. two of my co-parents many years ago as friends said, you know, we keep dating people who don't want to have kids, but we really want to have kids. What if we committed to co-parenting together as friends? Mm. You know, we're queers. We do what we want. Um, and so that I think was really <laughs> the origin story was them basically saying, look, we know we want to become parents. We don't want to have to wait to find, you know, quote unquote, like the one, you know, the romantic yeah. partner who mm-hmm. is going to be your like perfect co-parent. And then eventually, you know, my other co-parent like dated her way into this family system. And then I kind of laugh because my genesis was actually initially like what was very much supposed to be a casual hookup uh, with my now partner. (laughs) So I hooked up my way into this family. And the process of becoming a parent, you know, took longer than that. Um, But actually, by the time my partner and I really very first got together, they were already in the process of trying to become pregnant and were already committed to co-parenting with these other two folks. And so as our relationship became more serious, as they were still in that ongoing process of trying to become pregnant, you know, then I became essentially folded into this family through a lot of conversation between us. So it started on purpose before our first child was born. So that's where we've been at this uh, for nearly six years. So that's where it, it is an everyday an everyday practice in my life and one that I'm still learning from. That's a really great origin story. I, I love that so much. <laughs> Yeah, like it wasn't, it wasn't through any kind of, um, you know, there's different kinds of apps, I think now that some people are using to find co-parents. This was, was definitely more through the classic queer practice of hooking up. 
<laughs> yeah, well, as a as a polyamorous uh, person who is very, um, I, I purposely call myself slut positive uh, because that word to me is is a compliment that I use about myself. I can identify, <laughs> you know, especially being part of a, a polyamorous community and watching the fluid dynamics of so many of those. Uh, relationships and and that do sometimes lead to co-parenting situations, which is, I think, not to say that you have to be, of course, polyamorous or even queer to do collective parenting at all. Um, it's just interesting how that, that ends up intersecting a lot of the time, it seems like. Yeah. And I mean, I think certainly something that I think about in the context of our family system is like, what are the lineages we're part of? And for me, there is that aspect of by parenting in this way, we are connected to lineages of queerness, you know, thinking about historical mm. movements for gay liberation, for children's liberation, you know, and that there are these really interesting kind of entanglements and histories that I think, you know, feel important for me to be able to lean into, like, as a mm -hmm. queer person doing it in this way. Um, but I think also recognizing that these kinds of family formations exist in so many historical and cultural yeah. and geographic contexts, you know, and that, um, you know, they're very deeply tied into particular kinds of communities, you know, thinking about many Indigenous communities, for example, mm -hmm. or Black communities, and all of these different ways of practicing, forming family, and what does it look like to actually be in a, a conscious or intentional practice of pushing against the kind of narrow family forms that the state, and, and again, through processes mm -hmm. of settler colonialism and white supremacy, tries to impose, often violently, you know, on particular communities and particular mm -hmm. people and families. Yeah, I, I was going to say, as an Indigenous woman, um, you know, that was a, a rich part of uh, our history, um, you know, before colonialism came along, was the, the more collective parenting and, and, you know, grandparents, if they were still around, were always very involved in taking care of children and not just their, you know, uh, biological grandchildren, but the, the children in the tribe. Um, you know, so that collectivism was was there for a long time and, and um, was it, it worked very well and it was very uh, healthy and, and, and functioned for the better of the community. So it's unfortunate for many reasons that we don't have that now. And really inspiring and uplifting that folks like yourself are um, putting that into deliberate practice and helping teach others um, about, you know, collective parenting and, and, and ways to do that because I think it, it does um, strengthen our communities uh, and, you know, helps us all as, as individuals and, and parents as well, you know, as a single mother now, uh, it's nice when I've had friends or when family lived nearby that I could have more uh, shoulders to lean on. Um, anyway, we can get into more of that. It's just, uh, uh, yeah, I'm just really touched by that. Well, and it feels like an important point of connection for me as someone who is the only child of a single mother, you know, and I think so much about how the image of parenting I had growing up, you know, was certainly of seeing a mother parenting in a lot of isolation because of the really important survival driven choices my mother made around purposely moving us away from her family of origin as a way to break cycles of intergenerational trauma, which was really necessary for our survival and also was something that did cause different kinds of severing from kinship, right? And so yeah. I think a lot about like, what does it mean to be parenting the way that I am now? And how is that teaching me 
really important lessons and simultaneously allowing me to do a lot of unlearning, I think, mm-hmm. about um, maybe narratives of, of independence or isolation that I think I internalized really mm-hmm. deeply as a young person. And that, mm-hmm. I think, for many years gave me the idea that I couldn't want, couldn't become and didn't want to be a parent because it it felt overwhelming to contemplate the idea of doing ah, it on my own or doing uh-huh. it with a single person, another a partner. Um, and it was really only through this family formation that I realized, oh, wait, you can do this. <laughs> and I, I know, I now know, of course, it's it's so possible, but um, that those possibilities hadn't been modeled for me until my late 30s was how I wow. came into this. Um, yeah. yeah. And I wonder too, I know that... Um, given, I think, particularly the focus of this show, I wonder if it would be helpful for me to talk a little bit more about maybe some of the practicalities or, or structural aspects of our collective parenting, because I think it's I think it's maybe sometimes useful to sort of turn it inside out a little bit. And the specific things I'm thinking about are, so domestically, you know, we are a family that we live in a house together, we share our resources and and financially um, share all of our resources on a sliding scale basis that shifts according to what any person's income is at a given time. So there's, I think that experience of like, what does it mean to be dwelling together? Um, but we also have different parenting roles. So we have two lead parents, you know, those platonic co-parents at the center and then Uh, uh, two vice parents. So me and my other (laughs) co-parent. So we kind of made up our own name, but yeah, I like it. I think that that maybe is, is useful to talk about too, because I like the idea that parenting or parent isn't a monolith. Like it also gets to be something where there's that opportunity to really think about, okay, well, what does this look like in practice? And I mean, in our family, what that's looked like is the lead parents are the people who, you know, individually each were uh, pregnant and carried our kids. They nursed them. You know, we're really fortunate to be in Canada where where more people have access to extended parental leave from work. Mm, So they were the ones that took longer periods of leave to care for our children when they were really young. Um, And they also, I would say, kind of carry a heavier, heavier mental load. Of parenting, you know, which is, I think, a big part of the work of parenting is just yes. like holding it all in your head. Um, yes. <laughs> and for me as a, an a early morning person and recovering insomniac, I'm also grateful that I don't do nights in the same way that the lead parents do. So uh, that's a real mm, win for okay. me. And I think can also be, you know, for some people, you know, thinking about parenting through the lens of accessibility, like what possibilities might collective parenting create in terms of thinking about like how can we each show up as parents in ways mm-hmm. where we can both meet the needs of the family system and have our needs met? Um, and as vice parents, you know, we're very, very actively involved in the everyday work of parenting, you know, mm-hmm. getting the kids ready for school, making lunches, giving baths, taking them to school and daycare, putting them to bed at night, all of those kinds of things, um, particularly because of living together and having three small kids. But I think it's useful maybe to think about some of those practicalities and I'm happy to answer questions if there are specific things you're curious about. Yeah. When you, when you say vice parent, um, you know, I just inherently hear a word that, that, uh, makes me think there's a hierarchy to it. But then of course, what you just said there is that you're very actively involved in all these other aspects of their life. So I am um, quite curious about whether there is any sort of hierarchical structure in your your um, collective parenting situation, uh, and also noting this is a very run on question. I'm sorry, but uh, you know sometimes 
when you fill out, say, school forms for a kid, there has to be like the the medical decision maker. Who do they contact and you know gives permission if there's an emergency? There's some of that kind of stuff, which isn't necessarily hierarchical, but it is like you almost have to decide, okay, whose name is going to go on, you know, this part of the form. So that's a two or three part question if you want to try and tackle that. I like it. I feel like it's an inherently polyamory inflected question. Like, is there a relationship hierarchy? And I would say, you know, yes and no, in the sense of the hierarchical nature, like one of the things I think is really interesting in the context of our family system is to see how attachment operates and like our kids are all attached to all of us. And Mm -hmm. it is true that the children in our family at this time anyways, and they're all pretty little still have Mm -hmm. particularly strong attachments to the parent who birthed and nursed them. Right. And was their primary caregiver through the first year of life. So I think that's an aspect of it. Um, And I think, we run very democratically in terms of how we show up in our family and how we make decisions together. And there's also the the both explicit and implicit understanding that by virtue of the roles that we have, we get to participate in different ways. Okay. And I would say for me as a vice parent, the way that I would describe it is maybe I have a little more freedom and flexibility to tap in and out of parenting, hmm, which okay. is helpful for me as someone who has a full-time job, a writing practice, you know, thinking about the the other ways that I'm, I'm spreading my time and attention across all of the things that I do. Um, so I think that's a, that's a piece. And, and one of the things that I think is a really crucial, honestly, tool for our family is we have a weekly schedule and every weekend mm-hmm. we sit down and have a meeting called week in review. And we look at the schedule for the week and we say, okay, Who's doing bedtime for which kid? Who's doing school drop-off? Who's doing daycare drop-off? Who's doing daycare pickup? Who's doing school pickup? Who's cooking dinner? What are you cooking dinner? Who has a massage appointment? Who has a volunteer shift? When is our friend coming to visit? So I think you do that, actually, you do that every week, once a week. Yeah. And it takes time? like wow. it takes like half an hour. You know, it's because okay. we we're so practiced at it, right? It's very straightforward because we also have places where we try to have a regular cadence of, you know, this is the bedtime rhythm we work with. This is the school drop-off and pick-up rhythm, that kind of thing. And it creates predictability for the kids too, which is helpful Mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also find it, it takes, I I think maybe the decision fatigue out of having to do it on an everyday basis because we just have it mapped out for the week. And then then we flow and flex, of course, as things come up. So are there kind of, yeah. Are there, are there defaults at all in the schedule? Like so-and-so usually is able to do Tuesdays and, and you know, person Q is able to do Wednesdays or uh, anything like that, that you can kind of, that you get to start from a place of predictability or, because it almost sounds like every week you're reinventing, not reinventing the wheel, but like f- figuring out who goes into all the slots. But I'm, I'm hoping, I'm guessing that there's a little more. Uh, that's maybe already built in normally that you can work definitely from. okay yeah there's definitely <laughs> some predictability like we have a standard bedtime rotation and we just go basically in alphabetical okay. order and so and then it's also really helpful because it means that the the couples we get two date nights a week nice because we are not on a kid bedtime mm-hmm. those nights And so even just being able to have more time off, right, than would be afforded if we were doing this, you know, if there were just two of us or if if it was one of us doing it on our own. So Mm -hmm. I think that's also something that's been really helpful to build in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I know you asked a question, too, about 
what I would think of maybe more around like how have we chosen, what are the decisions we've made around legally formalizing our roles? And I would say we're in a space of, of evolution around that. So we made a very intentional choice, including after talking with, you know, radical queer lawyers who've done a lot of work in this area to think mm. about, you know, what do and don't we want to have legally or state sanctioned around the, the family relationships that we have. And the choice we had made was to have the co-parenting dyad be the two people on the birth certificate for all of our kids. Okay. There's some greater degree of flexibility where we live in Canada because of the legal advocacy of people with different kinds of family structures, but we still would be limited. Uh, we couldn't actually put all four of us on the birth certificate. It isn't allowed given the nature yeah. of the relationships that we have. And yeah. that's been fine up until this point. But now that our older kid is in public school, we're mm -hmm. actually now in a process of realizing that it is really necessary for the, the two parents who are not on the birth certificate to go through a process of formally, uh, we're, we're choosing to do a legal guardianship of our kids rather okay. than going through becoming kind of a full legal parent. And again, that's through consultation with other radical queer lawyers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and I say that because I think this is one of the tricky things about like what would be most values or politically aligned around I don't want the state to sanction my relationships. Like that that actually right. feels oh, values yeah. misaligned for me. And simultaneously, like what does it mean when, you know, we and our children become implicated with these institutions in different kinds of ways? And when does it become a barrier around things like getting to be recognized as a parent by the school, getting to be a healthcare decision maker for a kid right. in the event of an emergency, that kind of thing. So we're in a space of having to make some different choices now. And that's complicated because it involves the courts. It involves getting criminal record checks, like things that are highly inaccessible to many people in many communities um, and that we're, we're muddling our way through. Yeah, that's quite the that's quite the journey for sure, and, and um, I'm sure very a very interesting process to go through and figure out. And I, my yeah. learning is don't casually mention to the the lady at the police station that you're doing gender open parenting. She will immediately become icy cold to you. Okay. Why did I not predict that? So many reasons. <laughs> yeah. She asked me about the gender of our children, and I chose to answer honestly. It was probably the wrong choice. Uh, yeah, I hear you. Uh, um, I'm in our in our pre-taping conversation. You mentioned that phrase, the gender opening parenting, and this is maybe kind of an aside and not exactly collective parenting. Um, I'm intuiting what I think you mean just from the phrasing, but I haven't actually heard uh, anyone use that phrase before until you said it. So I'm wondering if you might be willing to go off on a a little tangent here with me and and uh, teach me about that. Yeah. I mean, the, maybe the simplest way is that we didn't assign a gender to the kids when they were born. We And we just used they, them pronouns, okay. which again, I, I recognize is still a choice, but in, in our family, we, we've opted to use they, them pronouns for our kids until they were big enough to say otherwise. And so with our older kid, it was very clear just before she turned three, she said, I'm a she, I'm a girl. And we said, okay. Hmm. And proceeded accordingly. And our other kids are still little enough that they yeah. haven't articulated that to us. And, you know, the message we always want to give to our kids over and over again is whatever that looks like in the future, 
if it changes, wonderful. You know, we will celebrate and accept you exactly as you are. And that also feels really important in our family with a couple of parents who are non-binary, all of us who are queer, you know, and mm -hmm. really trying to create a space um, for our children that's really affirming of them and the fullness of, of who they are and who they're in a continual process of becoming. With your with your older child who has now identified her her own um, gender, and I guess as you're doing, you're raising the younger ones too, are there... I'm thinking about like when I go to the toy store, right? And there's still, you know, the girl aisle and the boy aisle kind of a thing. And there's probably other scenarios of of that kind of like classic gender division. And I'm wondering how much you you all had to work to like to avoid any of that or if you did or how you managed some of that while you were trying to keep this gender open parenting uh, philosophy going on. Or practice, I mean, one of say, practice. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I think gender is is always present, right? Right. In so many kinds of ways, and certainly becomes this like shaping and structuring thing in our society. Public bathroom. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, even thinking about it at the level of like children's clothing, you know, as as a micro example, it is mm -hmm. so fascinating to me how different the cuts are between yes. a quote a t shirt for a quote unquote girl and a t-shirt for a quote unquote boy. Identical sizing in terms of the, the kid clothing size, but actually in our experience, like vastly different size, right? Yes. Um, cuts. And so I, I use that as a micro example, I think, to think about the ways in which, you know, gender shows up in so many layered ways mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. obviously shows up for, for kids in a whole bunch of kind of ways. And I think what we try to do is just create a, a space of possibility giving the kids lots of choices around the type of garments that they wear, not attaching labels around this is a boy thing or this is a girl thing, you know, just really saying, oh, okay, this is what you want to wear. This is what you like. Great. How can we support you in that and, and give okay. you lots, lots to choose from, whether it's around how they want to express themselves or what they want to do. Um, and I mean, I like it in the context of our multi-parent family too, because I think about the different strengths we bring as parents. And I know that I will never be the, nor do I want to be the sports parent, but like <laughs> as, a, as a queer femme, you know, who's been deeply immersed in femme community for 20 years, I am definitely the parent who will paint your nails. Nice. You know, if you want your nails painted, <laughs> like I got you, you know? And so yeah. I think about that too, in the different ways we can model, like what are the gender expressions we have as adults in our family? We're very lucky to have a community of people around us with a lot of really diverse gender expressions. And so I think mm -hmm. that's also something that's really helpful for our kids to see that there's a lot of kind of ways to be. Yeah, that's really neat. So I imagine that you, you know, probably don't even sort of approach clothing from a gendered standpoint a lot of the times like you know I, I I need to work on my own thinking but like if I were to pick up a a, a two-year-old size bright pink shirt my brain uh, immediately would go oh you know girl or uh, you know if I pick up a, a, a two-year-old shirt that's got you know big old monster trucks on it I, I think boy and uh, so my original question to you was was trying to imagine like that scenario and then what you do or don't put on the kids but I I suppose that if you're coming at it with a really non-gendered perspective and saying this is not a girl thing this is not a boy thing it doesn't matter who's wearing what you know, you don't have to try to put them in quote unquote gender neutral things either. Am I, am I right in thinking that? 
Yeah. And I think especially because I think sometimes what gets coded as gender neutral, you know, often is something that might look more sort of quote unquote kind of masculine. And I see this, I think, Mm. probably more reflected in my observations of some of the sort of ostensibly gender neutral clothing lines that have come out like I think often in context of queer community and being marketed at queer community, but then multiple times I'm seeing femmes say, hey, but is that actually neutral or is it is it really kind of like repackaging something that, um, you know, might be coded in other contexts as more kind of masculine, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's sort of the malleability of all of this stuff, but also kind of the stickiness of, of these, these gender norms that show up in all kinds of places. And I think, you know, for our kids, like hopefully we can bring the same ethos we bring to our own clothing, which is like, what feels good on your body, including from a sensory standpoint, like what's right. comfortable. Mm-hmm. And then also like what delights you and and what can you move in, you know, and <laughs> the clothing that a little kid needs is different, right? Than yeah. perhaps what my wardrobe looks like. Um, though I also think a lot about what can I move in because I sure do a lot of crouching and crawling around more than <laughs> I did before I was a parent. And I think a yeah. lot more about how will this outfit hold up to all manner of bodily fluids and other yeah. weird liquids? You know, it's really, it's a really a, a factor that I didn't used to think about in my pre-parenting life. Yeah. And my, my child is far enough kind of from that age. That's not really an issue. And so, you know, you say that and I'm like, oh yes, I remember that phase of parenting where that was one of the considerations. And, and it's uh, funny to be on the other side of some of these things and realize uh, some of what I've forgotten <laughs> that used to be of such great concern. Um, I want to back up though with you like three steps because we were talking about how when you came into the the relationship, you know, it was sort of already established that there was going to be this collective parenting where that quickly developed, whatever the time frame was. But, you know, by the time children came along, you all already knew that's how it was going to be. And I'm wondering if in that time or since that time, if you've done a lot of, I don't know, reading or researching or talking to other collective parents or or if you've done mostly kind of figuring it out, you know, with the four of you of how it works or, or perhaps a mix of uh, both techniques. But how did you learn how to collective parent is really what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I, I'm definitely learning all the time. And that's one of the things I, I love about it, right? You know, I think parenting is such an ongoing learning process, whether you Absolutely. do it collectively or not. And I think for us, there is a really, um, a really beautiful aspect that is about rootedness in community. And I feel grateful for that. Like there are other people that we know who were already doing different forms of collective parenting, again, as has been done for generations. But in this case, these are maybe more immediate kind of peers of ours that are mm-hmm. parenting kind of similar age kids in different cities, some in Canada, some in the US that we are in relationship with. And so there absolutely are those kind of conversations and connections that happen, which I think can feel like a real balm for us in terms of saying, oh, yeah, you know, how do you navigate this particular thing? Or, yeah. oh, yes, I also have had these types of conversations. Like, it's so great to be able to talk about this with another set of co-parents and see how you guys <laughs> are, you know, dealing with this particular challenge you might be grappling with. Or, oh, cool, you have a neat kind of hack. <laughs> like, tell us what it is we want to know. <laughs> And then I think, again, because we also have been more open about our family story intentionally, because I think we're mindful that, um, you know, certainly even thinking of my own experience, I didn't have models for this kind of parenting when I was coming up as a younger Uh person. So as a family, we've made an intentional choice to tell our story in certain contexts as a way we hope to be able to open the door for other folks to contemplate 
what kinds of possibilities they might want to co-create and the communities and relationships they're part of. And so I think there also is that um, element where where then people will come to us and say, we're just starting out or we want to do this. Can we talk with you? Can we learn from you? Mm -hmm. And we always try to be in that space of generosity and reciprocity. And absolutely, there's a research-based element, including for me as a writer whose work is historically informed. Like, I'm always really interested to learn about the lineages we come from. And mm-hmm. um, I'll never forget, you know, the the story I often think about, uh, which is mind-boggling to me when I think about it in terms of era. I read about a lesbian woman, this would have been in the late 70s, who was co-parenting a baby. And uh, she was doing with 10 of her friends. Wow. And like in the era before cell phones and group texts and email <laughs> and Google Calendar, like to co-parent a baby with 10 people, what an accomplishment, right? Yeah. Um, just logistically alone, it's astonishing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Um, do you find that, uh, or ha- let me say it this way, how common is it that um, people uh, become parents after they've decided to collectively parent as opposed to becoming collective parents after they've become uh, regular is not the right word, but, (laughs) you know, after they've become a parent, uh, starting to do collective parenting versus pre-planning for that. That's a good question. And I I can't say I have an easy answer to it because I would say it probably depends. Like I, I get the sense that more people are going into these kinds of parenting arrangements, like intentionally, before there are kids on the scene. And I also think that these kinds of collective parenting relationships and arrangements emerge organically over time as well, Mm -hmm. right? As relationships change, as people's situations change in the context of their family system. So I would wager it's probably a mix. And I Mm -hmm. would guess that there might be a bit of an upward trend in terms of seeing folks maybe coming into these types of family formations with intentionality before they have kids. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's based on literally no data whatsoever. Oh, I know. Except, but... except, except vibes and what I know <laughs> about, you know, how, how family formations are, are changing in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Well, you've certainly talked to a lot more uh, collective parents than I have. So, uh, you know, not that's a representative sample uh, as an economist, blah, 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 blah. Um, but certainly there's, there's uh, some information to be gleaned from, from your connections there. Yeah. And I think you can maybe also think about it in relation to, you know, places where we do see like legal advocacy happening, like often driven by folks in different kinds of poly family arrangements or, mm-hmm. or what might be a different or kind of non-normative family arrangement, like fighting to have those family arrangements and relationships recognized by the courts. So, you know, I think that that is also a place where, where I have seen shifts both in the U.S. and Canadian context and you know, what that's going to look like over time, obviously, given the, the regressive politics we're seeing right now, given rising fascism and obviously, you mm-hmm. know, targeting of trans and queer folks and, and people um, across a lot of lines of identity. I don't have a sense of any of those advances are going to be rolled back. But I do look at the work of organizations like the Chosen Family Law Center in the, the U.S. would be a great example of a place, I think, where they're doing some really interesting advocacy about you know, how might different kinds of family formations um, have greater legal recognition, greater state recognition, which does have many forms of utility, right, in all its complexity. Right. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunate, as you had said before, that, um, you know, the the state, that we sort of have to get the state involved in some of this because, you know, I, we don't want them in our relationships. At least I don't want them uh, in mine, much as you said you don't want them in yours. Um, 
but then, yeah, there's certain rights and privileges that are granted or denied, uh, you know, based on purely on biology a lot of the time. So there's the work that has to be done to, um, you know, move that forward. So you were just talking about, you know, our current political climate and, and the rise of fascism. Um, do you feel like collective parenting has become more important or more useful um, because of our current political and social climate that we're in? Yeah, as I was thinking about this conversation, I went back to the book Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice by Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Sumarasinha. And in that book, Leah quotes their friend Dory Midnight, who says, more care, more of the time. Mm. And I, I love the simple potency of that phrase. And the reason I'm drawing a direct connection to the current social, political, economic climate is that I believe very strongly in the need to grow and deepen our capacity for interdependence and to build the relationships that are necessary to enable more of us to survive. Mm. Like that, that is a um, something I, I try to organize my life around in a lot of different ways. And certainly I think collective parenting is, is one of those. And I think that, you know, certainly parenting and I think caregiving more broadly, whether you're caring for kids or other adults in your life, can be immensely joyful, pleasurable, rewarding, and fulfilling. And it also can be exhausting, depleting, and unrelenting, right? Like you're a single parent. I'm sure you have your own intense experiences of the joys and challenges of what it mm -hmm. means to be a parent and a caregiver. And so I think a lot about like, how might we actually grow our capacity to care for one another, you know? And mm -hmm. I don't think it's unconnected that one of the tenets of disaster preparedness is to get to know your neighbors. Mm -hmm. Like I think about that in the sense of like, what does it mean to build relationship to be an interdependence? And like, what does it mean to push back against isolation, including mm -hmm. the isolation that can come from the ways in which parenting is often organized in our societies. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think also how to broaden the frame so that we're not solely thinking about the experiences of parents, but also, again, thinking more broadly about caregivers, right? In that many people are giving care to folks of different ages. And more broadly, how do we all care for one another, you know, and mm -hmm. thinking about what we can learn from disability justice around that um, in the sense of really thinking about an active and ongoing practice of interdependence and collective care in all of its difficulties and messiness, um, and the transformative potential of that. And mm -hmm. that I don't, I don't mean that in um, a romanticized way either. Like I, I know that before we started recording, I was talking about like how many butts I wipe in my everyday life, you know, <laughs> it's a butt wiping intensive phase of life. And I'm sure I will enter into other ones as I, as I and the people around me age, right. Or become sure. disabled in different ways. And um, so I think so much about like the practical, tangible, hands-on aspects of this and how that connects to the politics and values we might be bringing to this, you know, and for me, this is a form of praxis. It's a form of prefigurative um, world mm, building, mm -hmm. you know, really thinking about like, yeah. what is the world I am working to build and how am I living those values in my intimate domestic relationships? And like it, it matters to me that I am doing this in my home space with the mm -hmm. people with whom I am in the most intimate of relationships. Yeah. But I also don't want that intimacy to stop like at the walls of our house either. And so how can we then continue to expand that web of interdependence out? And 
you know, it's interesting. I say this like as a gay divorcee, right? Like I have been gay married. I got gay divorced many years ago. I, I came full circle there. Um, my partner and I, my current partner and I had a DIY backyard magic ritual this summer, you know, no state <laughs> sanctioning involved. And it was really important to us in that where we intentionally spoke our commitments to one another and we spoke our commitments to our co-parents and our kids. And then mm -hmm. we spoke our commitments to the community and family that were gathered there. Mm -hmm. And that it was really intentionally about like, how do we create a space where we can honor the interdependence that we are part of and that holds us and holds our family and holds our relationship. And like, what does it mean to make an active commitment to that, including in the context of actually ritualizing it? Um, and as a, as a way to demonstrate the importance of that to the people that were there bearing witness and sharing in that experience with us. Wow, that is, that is so beautiful. It really is. Thank you for sharing that. All right, so we've talked about um, some of the great parts of collective parenting and, and the good that it brings to the children, the good that it brings to the other parents. Um, you talked about some of the tools that you have that have made that practice more successful, like your um, weekly sit down when you, you know, discuss calendar things um, together. Are there um, pitfalls in collective parenting, you know, things that lessons you've learned along the way, things that you've seen and heard and talking to others, um, you know, anything that sort of collective parents always try, but it never uh, works out. <laughs> so, you know, something some, somebody could avoid trying and inevitably failing at because it always goes that way or, or anything like that that you might want to share. One of the things that I really appreciate about and find consistently challenging about this experience of collective parenting and this particular form of like deeply intimate um, and sustained interdependence is what it asks, I think, certainly it asks of me in terms of building my capacity for conflict intimacy mm. outside of romantic partnerships or professional relationships. Because mm -hmm. I actually think that there are entire cultures and industries around how to have a better fight with your partner and how to have <laughs> a better fight with your coworker. <laughs> and I think it is really interesting and, and in some ways unsurprising that there's not similar modeling in a maybe more mainstream way around how to actually move well through conflict in our friendships, our intimate relationships. And like, of course, this is a place where I think there's much to be learned from transformative justice. Um, and, and it is a whole thing to think about, like, how to bring that into practice in your everyday uh -huh. life. You know, how to have a difficult conversation with someone you love and are intimate with to say, oh, hey, like that interaction we had in the kitchen, you know, was was frustrating for me. Here's why. Um, while still giving us like one another a lot of grace for yeah. you know, what it means to be living in the fullness of, of who we are and all of our messiness and grouchiness, um, you know, in the ways that <laughs> nobody needs to be perfect or perfectly happy all the time. Um, but I would say that that's something I've talked with my co-parents about at different kinds of points is like, how do we get more practice, practiced at having those kinds of challenging conversations, including in the context of just also the fullness of our everyday lives. Like, you know, we do have a weekly kind of evening, just the adults, you know, checking in, talking about parenting stuff, you know, bringing up anything that we might want to surface. And certainly we'll have one-on-one -on -one conversations when we need to work through something. Maybe that's kind of challenging or sticky that's come up between a couple of us. But um, 
I also am just tired a lot of the time, you know, and if it's the end of the day and I'm ready to go to bed, I don't want to be like, and now let's talk about our feelings for one yeah. hour. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you need to, right? Yeah. And I think also for me, that's a place where, you know, speaking personally, I found it really useful to have a therapist, you know, and to be able to hmm. reach outside my family system, of course, like through friendships and other kinds of relationships. But I mentioned my therapist specifically because I think so much about how so much of parenting for me is also about that process of reparenting myself and like looking back on my mm -hmm. own childhood experiences and like appreciating the gifts that I received through those experiences, but also the ways in which there are things I need to unlearn from how right. I was raised, you know, and thinking mm -hmm. about how those show up in my parenting. So big fan of internal family systems, you know, and I think that that's also a really interesting therapeutic modality in relation to collective parenting, because it's like, how are we holding the fullness of all the parts that make us up as individuals? And then how are we showing up in these more expansive, intimate and familial relations? So that's another pro tip. If you're into therapy, get a therapist. <laughs> Just really good advice, you know, generally, as long as you can find one and afford one. And um, that's also often impossible, which I recognize. Yeah. But I think, you know, the other thing I would say, too, is I think it can be sometimes um it can be easy to get caught up in perfectionism or the notion that there is any sort of getting it right, uh, you know? Yeah. And I mm -hmm. don't think that there is. You know, I think something I feel really grateful for in our family is that we come in with a shared set of values around parenting and a shared set of political commitments. And that makes a difference, I think, in terms of Absolutely. like we're able to move from that shared foundation in ways that makes the harder stuff easier to navigate and also the places where we do things differently. Like sometimes difference is perfectly okay, right? It doesn't have to be perfect unity on every single thing, right? But it is really understanding where do you need to be aligned on the stuff that really matters, right? And how can yeah. how can those shared values be helpful in that regard? Yeah. And I and then I also imagine that um having and practicing a, some amount of um you know, compassion and uh, empathy and understanding for um, other people and their different viewpoints. You know, I, I, again, I'm not collective parenting. I'm a single parent, but um, my child's father and I are sort of opposite ends of the political spectrum almost at this point. And um, I try very hard to be in practice of, um, you know, never putting down uh, her father. You know, that's part of who she is, uh, and being clear that, yeah, you know, I, I don't agree with this thing that he said, I don't agree with his stance on, on this and whatnot, but never making that about who he is as a person, never making it that he's wrong, even if I feel that way, but, uh, you know, being able to, uh, you know, articulate that we have this difference of opinion, um, in a way that holds uh, compassion and kindness uh, for that other parent in the situation, you know, even if I don't agree with them, even if, you know, I do think that some of their, their beliefs and practices are genuinely harmful to other human beings on this planet, but not putting that into uh, my child so much because they're going to, you know, learn that part on their own. And really what I need to do is um, just be clear on what, what I believe, uh, and, and not damage their other parenting relationship, um, in the process. At least that's how I feel about it. And, and, uh, you know, I'm open to, to being wrong or having, or learning that there's a better way to do that even than I am. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think about it in the sense of like, I sometimes think about how parenting feels like the most sustained and complex form of activism that I've ever done Hmm. in the sense that it asks me to live my values in a really intimate and ongoing and everyday way. And one of the places I continue to do learning is around children's liberation, confronting adult supremacy, you know, and I think about Mm. like Carla Bergman in the anthology Trust Kids that came Mm -hmm. out with AK Press. That's all about confronting adult supremacy and supporting youth autonomy. You know, I know Carla uses the phrase solidarity begins at home, you know, and I think so much about that too, of like, what are the ways in which many of us have both been taught and internalized relations of domination over children? And like, what does it look like to actually try and disentangle ourselves from those, I think really often insidious tendencies, like even in in those of us who are trying to, to the best of our ability, come at this from a more liberatory kind of way. So that for me, I think feels like a really rich site of inquiry and practice in all of this too. Um, And definitely a place where I'm really still learning. Yeah. Um, So I got the chance to interview uh, Carla almost a year ago now. It was um, February of last year um, on, you know, we talked about, we talked about her book and we talked a lot about adult supremacy. Um, So that was uh, the February 24th, 2023 episode, episode number 59. Um, Should any of our listeners be curious to go back and talk about that? And um, it's funny because, you know, when I when I sat down to talk with her, I actually wanted to talk with her about collective parenting. And then our, our conversation really took us into this realm more of talking about um, adult supremacy. And so that really ended up being the focus of that episode. It was great and really interesting and I think an important component of um, parenting in general, but also collective parenting uh, as well. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that... Um, I certainly have learned about that as well. <laughs> um, in our last couple of minutes here, I'm wondering if there are any other um, things that you might like to talk about with collective parenting, the ways it ties to um, other uh, social movements um, or issues uh, going on or, or um, just generally anything else that you want to say or share about collective parenting. Yeah, I mean, I think I would want to speak to some of those bigger connections and then I think end on a really practical, tangible note, because it's something I really appreciate about this podcast is I feel like I always walk away with things I can do. Um, and so, you know, something I do think Take about is <laughs> something I think about is like, you know, how how can these forms of parenting, you know, in this practice of deepening our capacity for interdependence and for intergenerational solidarity, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't assume that every person out there wants to be a parent, you know, or wants to necessarily be someone who's in an everyday caregiving relation. And I do believe very deeply that all of us should be committed to a practice of intergenerational solidarity that includes giving a shit about the children in our communities (laughs) and seeing them as self-determined people whose liberation is bound up with ours. And I have absolutely Hmm. no patience for adults who think it's cool to hate kids. It's not radical Mm. to hate kids. It's not cool. It's bullshit. And it's ageism. And I just feel so strongly about that, you know, similar to the ways in which I think so much about like, what might it look like to build communities where we honor and richly welcome in older adults, you know, disabled people, Mm -hmm. like all of the people who 
capitalism and white supremacy and settler colonialism and ableism and ageism and childism tell us are less valuable, you know, when in fact they are vital members of our communities and our movements, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think about that and I think about how we can also connect these practices to movements for abolition, you know, and thinking about the violence that the family policing system does to so many families, oh, particularly mm-hmm. indigenous, black, other racialized families, disabled families, you know, poor folks. And so what might be the ways in which these forms of collective parenting and again, just deepening our capacity for interdependence and solidarity with kids in our communities and parents and families can also be a way to intervene against the violence of that kind of state surveillance, child apprehension, family separation, and just reproductive injustice, right, that is happening in so many communities today, including and not limited to the experiences of trans kids. So I want to pull in those threads. um, And I also want to take a moment to just to speak maybe to the folks that are asking themselves, like, do I want to parent in this way? And what might that look like? And so some of the things I would share would be I think this is a place to begin by reflecting on your own wants and needs. You know, how do you imagine (laughs) parenting? What would you want your role to look like? You know, if there aren't already kids in the picture, how do you imagine those kids coming on the scene? You know, would that be through a process of somebody becoming pregnant? Would it be through adoption or fostering? You know, and again, all of these things are part of this process. I think it's also really important with the folks that you might be doing this with to really think about like having upfront conversations about your needs, your desires, your dreams, your visions, but also your fears and boundaries and your desired family or co-parenting structures and how you want to distribute the care and parenting labor. Mm -hmm. Not that you're going to have all of that figured out upfront, but I think, I think it's useful to begin the conversation. Um, And I think also to really understand that like none of this is fixed. It's going to change over time. Um, And I I would say, you know, maybe just a couple of other thoughts that I think are really pragmatic and and useful are, I think, to also think about how out you want to be and can be about your collective or co-parenting relationships. Like, are you in a position to be able to be out about this to... Mm -hmm your families of origin, to your neighbors, you know, to your Mm -hmm. kids daycare providers or school teachers or healthcare providers, um, to your kids' friends and their parents, you know, like we're really fortunate to be able to be out and well supported by our family of origin and and the various caregivers and teachers and community members we have. But that is absolutely not the case for everyone. And I think is also entangled with with the whiteness and other forms of privilege of our family that that insulates us. And I think also, as we've talked about, like to think about where and how you want and need the state to sanction your family structure, um, Hmm. you know, and and that that can create a lot of barriers for folks, right? You know, including the ways in which um, that that can disrupt people's access to disability or welfare benefits, for example, or bring the surveillance of the state onto you and your family system in ways that can be really harmful. Um, But it also can be an enabling tool in the system that exists. So I think I think to ask those kinds of questions as well. Um, So yeah, sort of kind of toggling between the like relational and values based Mm -hmm. and care work based piece. And then also the like, what happens when your family system is turning outward to the world that exists now? Mm -hmm. And what are the ways in which you want to be navigating? that world as purposefully as possible yeah yeah that makes sense and i really appreciate the um 
you know, that, that advice for folks considering the situation. Um, uh, it's, you know, obviously a really important um, starting point if you get to do that before, you know, the children come in the family or something that, you know, you definitely need to think about if you're, if you're um, going into, like you had said before, an organically forming um, collective parenting situation. So I appreciate that a lot. Um, before we say goodbye, uh, I, I wanted to, again, thank you for being here with me today, talking to me, uh, teaching me. I learned a lot today and I, um, I'm really grateful for that. And I hope our listeners did as well. Um, and then, uh, give you space, uh, if you have anything that you want to, um, share, plug, endorse, et cetera. (laughs) Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to be in conversation with you. And hopefully there are some some useful gems. And I can also share some some resources with you to put in the show notes if there are just sure. maybe some other books or things that, that I think are useful for folks maybe to check out as, as kind of part of their contemplations here. And I would say for plugging, I know you and I were chatting a little bit earlier. So I'm a writer and my most recent book came out in 2021. I have a new one coming out in 2025, but it doesn't have a title yet. But um, my 2021 book is called The Care We Dream Of, Liberatory and Transformative Approaches to LGBTQ Plus Health. And the simplest way I can describe it is the queer and trans health book that loves sex workers and hates cops. So if you want to learn about that or learn more about me and my work, and I do actually write a little bit about our family in that book as well, um, you can find it that and more information on my website, which is just xenasharman.com. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. And to our listeners, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please give it a like, drop a comment or a review. Subscribe to us if you haven't already. These things make the algorithms that rule our world offer our show to more people. This podcast is produced by the anarchist publishing collective Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. You can connect with us on Twitter at Tangled Wild and also on Instagram, or check out our website at tangledwilderness.org, where you can find our extensive lists of projects and publications. If you want to connect with me directly, you can find me on Mastodon at Ogemakwe Brook. That's Brook with an E. This podcast and much of the work of Strangers is made possible by our Patreon supporters. If you want to become a supporter, check out patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. There are cool benefits at various support tiers on Patreon. For instance, if you support the collective at just $5 a month, we mail you a monthly zine. We would like to give a specific shout out to some of our most supportive Patreon supporters. Thanks to Ali, Paige, Jennifer, Eric, David, Starro, Patoli, Chris, Theo, Kirk, Princess Miranda, Milicia, Marm, Catgut, Janice and Odell, Dana, Carson, Buck, Lord Harkin, Nicole, Papa Runa, Funder, Percival, Ben Ben, Micaiah, Anonymous, SJ, Trickster, Hunter, Chelsea, Julia, Boys Mutual Aid, and Haas the Duck.